Welcome back to the Dirt Show. Some interesting developments today in Ukraine. We don't know whether they're uh, significant or uh, just show, but they potentially could be very significant. Um, let's do the best case analysis and then the worst case analysis. Uh, the best case analysis is that Russia has realized that it can't uh, really uh, take uh, Kiev, uh, and uh, it's pulled back its troops and uh, it's repositioned them uh, in, in the east primarily to try to maintain control of the uh, so-called uh, breakaway provinces and, and, and Crimea, which it, which it has control over already. Um, and is basically the first step toward a significant retreat, if not a retreat, at least a status quo. There's still bombing, there's still rocket attacks, there's still deaths, there's still war crimes, I think, being committed. But uh, the potential is that maybe uh, Russia has been uh, persuaded that it can't do any better and it's going to try to find some excuse or justification uh, oh, all we wanted to do was secure the people in the East who really want to be under Russian control and are being subjected to Nazi, uh, this and that and the other thing. Um, sure, if uh, Putin wants a, a victory um, and if it helps the people of Ukraine, let him have it. We'll get in a minute to, uh, obviously, regime change and, and, and Biden's uh, statement. Um, but that's the best case scenario. The State Department, the White House, the Pentagon have all been very careful and said, look, we're seeing a change. We don't know what it means. It could be tactical. It could be an attempt just to try to move us away from increasing sanctions. Um, but maybe it's real, maybe not. Let's take our time. Let's not do anything different. So this is the meantime. You know, we always live in the meantime. The meantime is the time. Uh, and um, we wait and see. The people of Ukraine are obviously even more anxious about this um, than any of us outside are. And uh, one can hope, one can hope possibly that this has uh, uh, may, may mark a change <clears throat> in the Russian aggression and in the death rate and, and, and injury rate among the civilians and the soldiers. Uh, in Ukraine. Um, the Ukrainian military has been just absolutely phenomenal. And the Ukrainian leadership has been phenomenal. I mean, uh, the Churchillian speeches made by Zelensky um, really are historic. And um, uh, the vast majority of the world, except for the extremists, the extremists on the left and the extremists on the right, seem to support uh, uh, Russia. I don't know why, but uh, I've never understood extremism. Maybe it's because extremism is not understandable. It's not designed to make you understand anything. It's uh, designed just to uh, plot out a point on a continuum that makes them extremists and, <clears throat> and brings some attention uh, to them. But the vast majority of the world today, uh, the Western world, um, uh, the world outside of Western Europe, the United States, Canada, Australia, all seems to be opposed to what Russia is doing. China, of course, as usual, is playing 
games with both sides. But uh, thus far, I don't think it's given Putin, Putin what he would like, uh, kind of very strong support, including perhaps a military backup. So uh, at the moment, the only countries that really seem to be supporting a Putin are Belarus, which is an old-fashioned communist country, interestingly enough, that an old-fashioned kind of communist country supports the non-communist uh, Russia. But, you know, tyrannies love each other. And, of course, that's why Syria is on the side of, uh, of Russia. Iran is on the side of Russia. You know, there's some simple rule of thumb. If Iran is on one side, generally you should be on the other. Uh, Iran stands for nothing good in the world only pure, pure, unmitigated evil. <clears throat> and I would hope that maybe wiser minds may prevail in Washington after this about the Iran uh, Treaty. I don't think they will prevail. I think that uh, Obama locked America so, so closely into uh, accepting Iran, and John Kerry did, and, and, and Sherman, the then Assistant Secretary of State, committed themselves to Iran, and then Trump got out of the deal. So the Biden administration, although there are some dissenters in the administration, the administration itself seems committed to going forward with renewing the Iran deal. Blinken says longer and stronger, but I haven't seen any evidence of either longer or stronger. It seems weaker and shorter in the sense that um, it was longer when it first began, obviously, some of it has expired and time has, has run out. So I'm very skeptical. Also, and perhaps we'll talk about this on a future show, constitutionally, I do not think the president has the power to make a deal with uh, Iran over its nuclear weapons involving multiple countries. I do not think he has that constitutional power. It's a treaty. It quacks like a treaty. It walks like a treaty. It smells like a treaty. It looks like a treaty. It's a treaty. And a treaty requires a two-thirds vote of the Senate, and they can't get two-thirds of the Senate. They couldn't get a majority of the Senate. They couldn't get... At the time the, the, the uh, Iran deal was made, I don't even think they could have gotten a majority of the Democrats in the Senate. But uh, uh, Obama made the deal illegally, unconstitutionally, improperly, and immorally. And um, uh, President Trump, understandably, got out of the deal, as he had the right to do, because it was just an executive agreement. If it was a treaty, there's some question about whether the president can undo a treaty that was confirmed by two-thirds of the Senate. But there's no question that a succeeding president can uh, get out of uh, an executive agreement that was just made between uh, presidents of, of, of multiple countries. And they did that. And now... The issue is whether to get back to uh, the deal. Well, you can call it a deal. You can call it whatever you want. It's a treaty. It's a duck. Uh, you know, again, reminded, I think I've told you the story before, of um, Theodore White, the great journalist who was invited to have dinner with um, uh, Mao Zedong, and uh, they served him a roast pig, and White was Jewish, and he said, I can't eat pig. And uh, Mao Zedong said, in my country, I decide what everything is. I hereby declare this to be a duck. So what can you do? Uh, Mao Zedong could make a pig into a duck, but President uh, Obama and President Biden cannot make a treaty uh, into an executive agreement. It's a treaty, and it should be 
proposed to the Senate and defeated in the Senate, where I think it would be, or at least it would be modified, to a degree which would make it stronger and longer. Don't know whether the Supreme Court would take that case up. Um, political question, case in controversy, standing, who knows. Uh, but uh, every, every um, officer of the United States is sworn to obey the Constitution. So uh, what I have proposed, I have an article in today's daily New York Daily News, I have proposed that President Biden submit the issue to the Office of Legal Counsel in the Justice Department and get an opinion, a legal opinion, which should be made public, um, analyzing all sides of the issue, what constitutes a treaty and what constitutes an executive agreement. By the way, I get, I guess, one letter a day, maybe more, from one guy named Montague or something like that. He writes me every single day and says, the Montaigne, the Montaigne. He says every day, what's the difference between an executive agreement and a treaty? And then he writes and says, you never tell me what difference is between executive agreement and treaty. Well, I've mentioned it like three times. Now, Mr. Montaigne, go to the New York Daily News. Read my op-ed. It explains and stop writing to me what's the difference between a treaty and an executive agreement. I've answered that question, and I'm not going to answer it again to you. So uh, just read my article. Go back and Google it. If you want, uh, you'll see that there are, there are enormous constitutional differences, one of which requires confirmation by the Senate. Okay, speaking of Ukraine, you know I voted for uh, President Biden. I've known President Biden since 1980, um, and... Uh, I disagree with many of his policies, as I've disagreed with policies of every single president since I was 15 years old, younger. Um, and I'm going to continue to disagree with every single president. There's no president who's ever had policies I completely agreed with, no party, no party platform, no member of the Senate or Congress. I've never agreed with, with anybody. I'm not a, a, a loyal Scotsman, as that expression goes, where I have to buy into everything my party or my president or my candidate uh, says. So, uh, you know, I, I, I disagree with a lot of what the President Biden says. But uh, what do I think of what he said, the last nine words, or nearly the last nine words of his otherwise really excellent speech uh, in, in Poland? Um, he's Joe Biden. You know, he just saw what was going on with the horrors in Ukraine. He held in his hand, you know, babies that were sent away from their homes. He saw widows and, 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 and orphans, and he got emotional. And he said what he said. And I take him at his word when he said it was simply an emotional response to what he saw. That's his personal view. It's my personal view. I'm sure it's the personal view of many people out there. Uh, Putin should not be the leader of a country. I used to think he should be. I actually thought when he first came into office, I had relatively high hopes for him. Remember, I've dealt with a lot of uh, Russian and Soviet leaders. By the way, while I'm on that, I made a mistake the other day, a slip of the tongue. I talked about uh, Gorbachev at the Cuban Missile Crisis. I got my chaffs wrong. It, it was Khrushchev, obviously, Khrushchev back in uh, in the 1960s, Gorbachev was the 80s and 90s. So I apologize for confusing the chaffs. Um, but um, 
In any event, uh, I took him at his word, and I also agree 100% with what he said, that this is not going to affect what Putin does. Putin doesn't do things because of what presidents of the United States say in public. Um, It's not going to drive him to do more, to be more aggressive. It's not going to drive him to use nuclear weapons or chemical uh, weapons. Um, So, you know, was it a gaffe? Probably it would have been better if he had said, look, if you ask me my personal views, I don't think this man is qualified uh, to be a leader, but that's not American policy. We're not into regime change. You know, somebody said in the State Department, we're never into regime change. Nonsense. We've been into regime change over and over and over and over and over again. We were into regime change uh, with Allende in Chile. We were into regime change with Saddam Hussein. We were tragically into regime change, or at least tolerated regime change uh, in Iran. Uh, and and um, uh, Americans tried desperately to influence uh, even elections in countries like Israel. They, they didn't want uh, um, Netanyahu to be reelected. Um, so don't give me this stuff about we're never into regime change. You're into regime change. The question is, do you do anything about it? Do you do it through the CIA? Do you do it as, as was done with Allende? Uh, do you do it uh, more overtly um, with military steps? Obviously, the, the invasion of Iraq after 9-11 was an example of that. It was regime change. And we got regime change. And look what we got. Look what we got. We got a puppet regime of Iran. Uh, we probably would have been better off with Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein was a butcher, horrible man, a terrible man. Uh, terrorized his own people, but he didn't export terrorism in the way Iran does and the way Hezbollah does and the way uh, other organizations do. So, you know, the devil you know, I think it was Franklin Delano Roosevelt who was once asked how he could support, I forget who it was, one of the many dictators in, in Central America. And somebody said, you know, he's an SOB. And Roosevelt said, yeah, but he's our SOB. He's our SOB. We have supported terrible people uh, often, um, and we've helped uh, them stay in office, and we've helped them get into office, and we've helped them achieve regime change. If the Bay of Pigs wasn't regime change, I don't know what was. It failed, but it was an attempt at regime change uh, for the Cuban uh, regime under Castro. So we've used regime change, but I don't believe that this policy... Uh, is regime change. But I also don't believe what some people say, oh, no, no, it shouldn't be up to the United States to determine who's in charge in Russia. It should be up to the Russian people. Who? The Russian people? When's the last time the Russian people had a say in who was going to lead them? When? Maybe, maybe for a year or two when Yeltsin was in there, conceivably. But you go back into all of Russian history, the czars, (laughs) they weren't elected. Remember Woody Allen's great line, how the Russian Revolution really began? When the people realized that the Kassar, C-Z-A-R, and the Tsar, T, are the same person. Um, uh, The Tsar was never elected. Um, uh, The Bolsheviks were never elected. Stalin was never elected. Lenin was never elected. And all the many people who succeeded uh, them, Khrushchev and Gorbachev, and all those folks were, were never elected. So the people of Russia have never never in history had a voice in who was going to be in charge. Now, you might say 
the Bolshevik Revolution or the earlier 1905 revolution was a people's revolution, but it was a relatively small number of people, largely students, academics, and elitists, very wealthy people, interestingly enough. Uh, a lot of them were the, the communists, who uh, the Bolsheviks, who overthrew uh, the government. So <laughs> the choice is not between whether the Russian people will determine who's in charge or America or NATO will determine who's in charge. The choice is between whether American NATO will decide who's in charge or 16 Russian people from the Duma with some oligarchs are going to decide who's in charge. But uh, there's no option for the people of Russia to decide who's in charge. So I think today is a good day for uh, the people of, of Ukraine. I'm not absolutely sure. And if we can, if they can get out of this um, with the status quo intact, uh, we can then give them a Marshall Plan and we need to give them a Marshall Plan. We need to rebuild if this is over and I don't want to jump to conclusions, but we need to send money to Ukraine to rebuild. We need to help Poland um, uh, make up for what they had to contribute. After all, this is an international problem. It just happens to be that Poland is on the border of Ukraine and Moldavia and some of the other countries. Happenstance are on the border, but they've had to bear the brunt of the uh, refugee problem and they ought to be compensated. And uh, the world has plenty of money to make that happen. But let's hope that, uh, at, at the very least, um, the shelling of civilians. I mean, I just saw it today, just before uh, this podcast, I, I saw on one of the television stations um, a picture of the uh, theater that was blown up. I mean, a beautiful, magnificent theater with signs on top saying, children, children, children. This was a place that people hide from bombing. And it seems clear that it was targeted, that it was targeted. I was uh, teaching a class today at an Italian university, by Zoom, of course, but I was teaching it um, with a judge from the International uh, Criminal Court. Uh, she formerly sat on the International Criminal Court for the former Yugoslavia, and she's a professor from Belgium and a very eminent and distinguished jurist. And we were talking about the issue of uh, war crimes and the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court. And, uh, I mean, she was suggesting that there is really pretty widespread agreement in the international juridical community that uh, war crimes uh, are being committed, were committed, have been committed, and that the International Criminal Court does have jurisdiction, even though, as you know, Russia is not a member, Ukraine is not a full member, not really a member, not, but, but has partial standing. United States is not a member. Uh, many countries are not members. But the International Criminal Court through the United Nations, although it's a treaty organization, the Rome Treaty, can, with the support of the Security Council, which it won't get with Russia, uh, extend its jurisdiction. So I don't know whether there'll be any trials. I argued several cases um, in, in The Hague. It's, it's interesting. I had to wear a little, little dicky, and I had to wear a wig. I had to wear a wig. And I uh, had to pretend I was a, like a British barrister with my Brooklyn accent. And I argued in front of all these judges from all these different uh, countries on behalf of people from a variety of countries who were involved in the uh, former Yugoslavia uh, situation. Uh, 
the court had jurisdiction over everybody in the former Yugoslavia, so it went after the Serbians, it went after the Croatians, it went after uh, even some people from Macedonia and, and other places. So um, I know that court fairly well. I did briefs, argued cases in front of it. The former prosecutor was a good friend of mine. We taught some classes together, uh, Luis Acampo, one of the great, great prosecutors in history. He was the chief prosecutor in, in Argentina um, during the time when the Jewish Community Center was blown up by Iran um, and, and people acting on its behalf. And he's a great, a great lawyer. And um, there's a new prosecutor coming in now. I don't know very much about the new prosecutor, but I'll wait and wait and wait and see what actions are taken. But um, good day, good among many very bad days. You know, in, when you're a criminal lawyer, you don't judge things good, better, best. Generally, you know, I represent mostly people who are um, obviously guilty. Uh, thank God for that. Would you want to live in a country where defense lawyers mostly defended innocent people? That might be Iran, Belarus, Russia, but it's not the United States of America. So when you're a criminal lawyer, you're not usually looking at things in terms of good, better, best. You're looking at things uh, bad, worse, worser, worsest, and unbelievably unacceptable. <clears throat> and, and that's the way we look at, at Ukraine today. Things have never been good, but they've been bad, worse, worse, or worsest. Today, we elevated from worsest to worse, probably, or something on that continuum, and uh, we'll wait and see. In the days to come, whether or not um, things get even better, um, they can get worse. You know, the, uh, the Israeli difference between a pessimist and an optimist. A pessimist is somebody who says, oh, things are so bad they can't possibly get worse. The optimist says, yes, they can. And um, things could get worse in Ukraine. There could be the introduction of chemical, biological, uh, uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, hopefully it won't happen. Hopefully we're on the road to seeing things get better, but I can't be sure of that. So let me uh, turn to a few questions. I don't know if we have any questions on today's show, I mean, but... Uh, uh, DBRS just says, uh, uh, how do you give Putin an out? How do you give Putin an out? What's the off-ramp? Uh, it's a, it requires negotiation, obviously. And, you know, it, it, it happened in the former Yugoslavia. It happened in Ireland with the various accords. You compromise. Um, it may involve um, uh, allowing referenda in those areas on the extreme east. It may involve international recognition, Russian control of Crimea. Crimea that, you know, obviously it's illegal, but... Um, but in the real world, we sometimes have to do that. Look, uh, 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 Russia took over uh, a city from Germany and occupied it and still occupies it after the Second World War, uh, Königsberg. Uh, nobody's objected uh, to it. Uh, so uh, th th there are, there are off-ramps. Um, uh, the off-ramp would basically require that he remain in office that uh, there'd be no international criminal court charges and that there'd be some declaration of neutrality on the part of Ukraine, a commitment not to try to get into NATO, but what 
Zelensky has said is, all right, we'll accept those, but we need security guarantees. We can't ever let this happen again. So what Zelensky is offering is a compromise, no NATO, but NATO-like commitments to assure that Russia or Belarus or any other country will never attack again. Look, I think the best assurance that Ukraine won't be attacked again is how its military has done so well. And uh, I think that's the most important deterrent. And it makes it less likely that uh, we'll see a repeat of this. I think, you know, in the middle of the night when Putin is alone, whether he's alone or not, I don't know, and is thinking about all these things and doesn't have to admit anything to other people, I think that he is saying to himself, I wish I hadn't done this. Uh, He's saying to himself, this was a mistake. Um, I could have done a lot better if I had just stayed in the Ukraine and maybe limited myself to uh, the um, uh, provinces in the east. But trying to take over Kiev, mistake. Um, I think he realizes that. Any other questions from today's show before we get back to yesterday's? Um, Let's see. Well, some people were interested in what this is. They're not exactly sure. Which? Oh, this. (laughs) This is something I bought my son recently, and it's a drum skin from, uh, what's his name? Bruce Springsteen. Bruce Springsteen, my son's favorite singer. So one of these days, I'll go through this whole office and show you all the stuff that I have. I have some phenomenal memorabilia of my own cases and of history. So we'll do that one of these days. Uh, Let's go to some other uh, questions. Um, okay. Some questions, just they're interesting, but they reflect such amazing ignorance. Ah, uh, dude, 216, Hillary Clinton for four years was in court trying to prove the election was stolen. Okay. Thousand dollars to your favorite charity if you could prove that statement, that she was in court for four years trying to prove the election was stolen. Make sure you include all parties when you mention questionable elections. Yeah, I'm including all parties. Trump, he's the only one who did it. Al Gore didn't do it. I know I was a lawyer involved in that case. Hillary Clinton didn't do it. Uh, uh, Richard Nixon didn't do it. No, only Trump did it. And so the challenge is out there. $1,000 to your favorite charity. Put up or shut up. Okay. I got another one. Yeah, another one you have. Yeah. Yeah. Von Ronge. Ukrainian regime has been literally torturing the large Russian minority since 2014 with U.S. backing. Okay, I've heard that claim before. Usually it's added that the Ukrainian regime with Nazis have been torturing. I haven't seen the evidence. Um, If there was evidence, it could be brought to uh, the international courts or it could be... uh, put on on the media. Obviously, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the London Times would run a story like that if it were true. So just saying it doesn't make it true. Okay, a couple of more questions uh, going back to past shows. Um, Were you as critical about the Kavanaugh questioning? Yes, more so. I was outraged at the questioning of Kavanaugh, and I was critical of the uh, questioning of, of Barrett. I didn't think she should be questioned about her personal faith, her personal religious views. Look, 
you can accuse me of a lot of things, but you're never going to get me on partisanship or a double standard. Never. I'm always as critical of one side as the other, but I'm glad to have that question. A similar question. You said about the Republicans, you guys started the fire in reference to Garland, but on a previous show, you said Bork hearings were where the division started. Please clarify. Good point. Good point. I think it gets divided into two segments. There was the Bork thing. I think that's what started the politicization. But then after Bork, we saw unanimous nominations. Uh, Scalia, unanimous. Uh, Ginsburg, near unanimous. Um, uh, 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 Other people, overwhelming votes of both Democrats and Republicans. And the hearings, um, you know, generally were fairly, fairly well conducted. Thomas, reasonably we disagree about Thomas. Um, if there indeed was credible evidence of sexual harassment, should that be a disqualifying factor for service on the Supreme Court? Reasonable people could disagree about that. Was there too much of an emphasis on that? Probably yes. But in the recent incarnation, the fire, uh, that was caused by Garland. That was such a crass political move. The excuse that you can't nominate a justice to the Supreme Court and get hearings because it's within a year of the election, it's a four-year cycle, one year is only 25%, was such an excuse. Uh, It was the Republicans did it because they could. They had control. And they did it because they could. And then the Democrats tried to get even and get get revenge. And, uh, um, And it was a combination. It was a combination of Garland not being given a hearing and then um, Barrett being rushed through uh, just weeks before the election in total violation of the rule set out by the Republicans. So there's fault on on both sides. Okay, (laughs) this is a good one. Professor Dershowitz, please enlighten your audience about your method for staying so mentally astute at your age or any age for that matter. Thank you. There's one key, key thing. It's walking a lot to your doctors. <laughs> My walks generally these days, I'm 83 years old, is I go to this doctor, I go to this doctor. I've had to stay around where I am now because I've had some health, some health issues. But, um, you know, I walk every day. I try to walk five miles a day. I keep my mind going. Um, and um, I try to eat fairly healthily, although you put a good, really good pastrami sandwich in front of me. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to capitulate, but, um, and I argue with all my kids. Um, you know, uh, my kids are very opinionated. I just, <laughs> I saw the movie last night. I, I wanted to watch it, but I never did. Um, um, King Richard, um, the movie that stimulated the slap. And, uh, I commented to my wife as we were watching it. The five daughters uh, constantly said, yes, daddy, yes, daddy, yes, if you want it, daddy, yes, daddy. I don't think any of my kids has ever said yes, daddy, to anything I've ever said. You know, I brought up my children to be contentious and to uh, be insistent on presenting their points of view about everything. My wife is that way. We love each other. I love my kids. My kids love me and my grandkids. But we, um, we argue about everything, and uh, I think that, uh, that, keeps you, that keeps you sharp. Look, at 83, I don't care who you are, nobody is as quite as sharp as you were at 26. The problem is it's wasted. It's wasted often on young, 
on young people. It's when we're old, we need to be smarter, but, um, but we're not. So uh, the question is one of degree, how you keep fresh, how you keep your ideas fresh, how you try to listen to everybody, how you try not to be a dinosaur uh, and uh, accept new, new ideas, uh, but not give in uh, and, and assume that the ideas are better just because they come from, from young people. Experience matters too. So uh, thank you for your question. I'm going to try to stay uh, as young mentally as I possibly can, young and old. I like the old, the experience, and the young, uh, the, 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 the healthy uh, mind. And um, I have one suggestion for you if you want to have your ideas fresh and stay young. Listen to The Durst Show. You'll always be stimulated. You can get me on Locals 2 and, um, and uh, YouTube. And YouTube, you can get me on. And Apple Podcasts. Apple Podcasts, my son Spotify. says. And Spotify. Yeah. So anytime you want, if, you're, if, you're, if, if you haven't gotten enough of Dersh on the show, you can get me. Remember what I say about The Dersh Show. It's the Durst Show. The only thing missing is the wits, and the wits are provided by my uh, audience. Um, and uh, I look forward to seeing you tomorrow with some new news, some new ideas. Let's hope we have some good news overnight on Ukraine. Wouldn't it be nice to be able to open tomorrow's show with a kind of a celebration of something good happening? I'm not saying I'm optimistic about it, but I'm hopeful. See you tomorrow.